it'll be interesting in the coming weeks to to talk about as we see who some of these appointments are. Uh, I didn't want to mention it just because it's it's mere speculation, but uh, there's there have been whispers Newt Gingrich is Secretary of State. <laughs> oh God, yes, that's right. Isn't that we will have moon bases <laughs> everywhere, guys? The space. Oh yeah, I need to. Oh. I need to hit it. Uh, the now the I space have. wall. Hello everyone, and welcome to the first ever Orientalist Express podcast. This project is intended to provide in-depth discussions on a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Every few weeks, we will be gathering together several young scholars of these fields to share their insight, analysis, and predictions on some of the most pressing issues in global security. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website and my background is in contemporary Middle East history with a focus on international relations. With me today are a few good friends and colleagues from my academic life who have all helped contribute articles and perspectives in the blog portion of this project in previous months. Today we have Stephen Howard, Brandon Kenny, and Kurt Gunner. Let's go around the virtual room and introduce ourselves, starting with Stephen. Hi, my name is Stephen Howard. I'm a graduate of the real SDSU, South Dakota State University, in political science and with a minor in history. I, during that time, I studied international relations and focused on Middle East politics. I'm looking forward to discussing with you guys. I'm Brandon Kenny. I have three bachelor's degrees, each in political science, international affairs, and Spanish, as well as a master's degree uh, in public policy with a focus on global policy. And I'm Kurt Gunner. I'm finishing my PhD, uh, theoretically at the University of Utah, studying the modern Middle East, um, specifically the relationship between Turkey and the United States in the early Cold War. All right. So our very first podcast comes just days after the very surprising and contentious election of real estate mogul and reality TV star Donald J. Trump to the office of President of the United States. Reality TV legend. Legend, yes, thank you. He's huge. <laughs> huge. Much of America is still trying to understand this result, as most people in mainstream society seem to believe that his challenger, Hillary Clinton, was a sure bet to win. The foreign policy establishment is particularly concerned about how the next four years might play out, given the many campaign promises he has made, which challenge some fundamental assumptions about how American foreign policy is to be conducted. Among these are calls to dissolve NATO, rip up trade agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement, label China a currency manipulator, give nuclear weapons to Japan and South Korea, and target the families of those who engage in terrorism. Which of these he is serious about and which were just campaign bluster remains to be seen. But there is little doubt that we are likely to see at least a few dramatic shifts in global international relations. But today we will focus on just a few of the critical areas that could potentially change in the next four years. These are the Iran nuclear deal, the Syrian civil war, and the future of U.S.-Russia relations. So let's begin first with Iran. The agreement to limit Iran's nuclear weapons has been sharply criticized by congressional Republicans and several nations in the Middle East. Trump has expressed strong criticism of the deal, and many believe his presidency could undo this deal entirely. Is this deal likely to be undone? Uh, what are the implications? Let's get into it. 
you know, I really do think that uh, for all his bluster on the campaign trail and what we consider bluster, honestly, he will undo this deal. There's no way that he won't abrogate it. He has too much, I guess, pressure coming at him from not only his own constituents, but from the actual main Republican base. We remember them. They signed that letter, what was it, a year ago now or so, that basically said, hey, President Rouhani, remember, this is how the political system works in the United States. And the only reason that you have a political agreement right now with the United States is that we have a executive agreement. And the second we get a new executive, he can get rid of that agreement. Which, let's be honest, there's no way. I read an article from, I think it was Stanford recently, where it was talking about how this deal has to be basically reaffirmed every at least 180 days. There's no way that President Trump will take the time out of his life to every 180 days reaffirm this deal. It's going to fall through either through negligence or through willful act, and I'd be confident that it'd be this uh, latter. And I, I have to agree and throw in uh, uh, Speaker Paul Ryan is very much opposed to the deal. He's been an outspoken opponent. Um, and I can't help but think that this will be one of the first agenda items um, when uh, in January, when Trump is sworn in as president. Yeah, it's, it's disheartening uh, because I think for a lot of people, it seemed like a potential end to the stale and, and, and crusty Iran-U.S. relations, you know, in, in part just because we we're finally talking. We're finally moving forward. Um, I'm not sure that any of the Republicans who criticized the deal could name anything about it, and particularly they don't like, other than it was a bad deal and it's something something America. Uh, I don't really know what their plan is to replace it with, but I can't imagine if you're any of these so-called uh, unaligned powers or any kind of group that America's negotiating with in the future why would you make any deals if you just know that this guy is going to, you know, get up at three in the morning and decide, well, I was, you know, we got taken, we got taken for a ride. I'm just going to cancel it. You know, it's, I think it's going to do a lot of damage to, I mean, not necessarily our prestige, but uh, the trust in our diplomatic institutions abroad. No, you're completely right. It's going to do uh, irreparable damage to our prestige because as you said, if they can't trust us to follow through on these political agreements, why are we even making these agreements in the first place? Right. Uh, you're going to be looking at this sort of, and I don't know why he's saying that he can renegotiate this deal, because the Iranian Congress is already so incredibly split between the hardliners, the moderates, and the progressives, and there's no way that anyone can get any more out of this deal, because the hardliners will look at it and go, oh, President Rouhani sold us out. If we try to renegotiate even a small aspect of this deal, the deal is dead in the water. And so is President Rouhani and any idea of a progressive Iran. You know, I wonder to what extent um, this all falls on the United States, right? Because, I mean, this is an international deal with many other countries as well. Are we going to see, you know, are we going to see it fall apart because of them as well? Or is, like, I guess my question is, to what extent can the United States alone destroy the steel? Mm, right. Well, I mean, yeah, U.S. financial institutions have disproportionate weight when it comes to imposing sanctions on other countries, but 
the United States had to go out of its way to get China and Russia to agree on these sorts of sanctions. And there's no way that we have the political leverage to be able to reimpose those sanctions. It may have worked well for countries like Cuba, which <laughs> is right next to us. Iran, not so much. They are going to go to, I foresee, Russia, honestly, gaining disproportionate amounts of influence that they don't have quite yet. There's still a anti-foreign, or anti-foreign government, I should say, uh, feeling in Iran. But they are going to really have to look for a patron out in the political system because Saudi Arabia is going to be aligning against them. You have uh, a greater Middle East kind of looking at them and going, this is your fault. And after ISIS falls, they're going to be the common enemy again. They're going to have to look for a foreign patron. That foreign patron is going to be Russia. Russia is going to use them to bolster their defenses against, <laughs> I know we hate to say it, but any sort of Islamic uh, fundamentalism that Russia is honestly very, very susceptible to because they have such a large Muslim uh, minority in Dagestan and South Ossetia and all those other places. So we, I do foresee Iran becoming much more of a client of Russia. And I think considering just the proximity of the nations as well, it's uh, traditionally it's not hard. It's not hard to see the historical connections there, right? You know, Iran looking for a patron, the United States not trusting them, and in this case, doing all the things that America asked them to do. Following every procedure, following mm -hmm. all of these mm -hmm. trust, trusting in the diplomatic process and trusting in a kind of thawing out of, in many ways, what was just kind of a race-based or religious-based um, tension. And now all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, what did we learn here, guys? <laughs> never, never again, or at the very least, uh, you know, with a grain of salt. You know, never trust American outreach until you see it in writing. And even then, uh, you only have four years before they elect a reality TV star who's just going to come out and change his mind. Oh, I completely agree. What uh, what implications do you think that this has for uh, our other allies in the region, Gulf states, uh, Israel, who were, were never uh, huge fans of the deal? Um, but, so on the one hand, they, they might they, they'd be in favor of, of Trump walking back on the, the Iran deal. But on the other hand, Trump has been, specifically with Saudi Arabia, has been vocally... Um, uh, antagonistic towards Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. I think that's really a triple-sided question because you have, as you said, the United States is walking back its alliance with Saudi Arabia, which it was happening during the Obama administration. And that's why Saudi Arabia became so aggressive in Yemen, because it couldn't count on any U.S. support for any military actions that it might want to undertake. So it is itself becoming more aggressive in, I guess, the realist nature of international relations. And then you also have the idea that Iran is going to be a lot more alone in this new system because it's not going to have the international or the uh, the nuclear deal. So you're going to have, I believe, that you're probably going to see them look to restart the nuclear program, if not for leverage, then for honest defense. I mean, yeah. I think we have to keep in mind, too, that uh, what kind of gets brushed aside in these conversations is that Israel has nuclear weapons, and they have been taken over by an increasingly right-wing and aggressive state that sees uh, preemptive strikes and 
an extreme military force against civilians in Palestine as a reasonable and understandable uh, uh, mode of defense. And, you know, I don't want to be completely dismissive of the fears of the Israeli people um, from terrorist assaults, but, you know, Netanyahu has done nothing to encourage his, you know, lukewarm opponents overseas that he's going to calm down anytime soon. Any any uh, regional power nearby that can defend themselves must assume that with Trump's kind of blind adherence to Israeli support, that, you know, any criticism that's coming out of the United States is going to be muted and more weapons are going to be coming in. Uh, Israel now has a free hand to act where before they had a mostly free hand and make it a stern letter from Obama. Now they're just going to get tweets of, of you know, uh, support from Trump. So I don't know. I imagine for a lot of Iranians, it's um, a very, obviously a very nerve wracking time. But, you know, getting nuclear weapons to defend yourself does not seem outlandish in a, in a kind of cold, objective light. And then I'd actually like to hear your guys' opinions on the idea that this might basically be the fire starter for a greater Middle East war, because I do agree that this really does mean that Israel and Saudi Arabia should take a more aggressive posture for their own national security against Iran. And obviously Israel has shown that preemptive strikes, as you were saying, are part of that uh, idea. And Iran has shown that it is very capable of defending itself when attacked, eventually at least. And I, I mean, Iraq is obviously going to become a battleground, but what do you see about the prospects for a greater Middle East war between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran? It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I don't know. Um, I think that ICE, now that ISIS is being kind of, not cornered, but hemmed in a little bit, uh, they're going to, I think my, my theory, at least what, I, what I've read, been reading from different writers like um, Hassan Hassan has been a prolific writing about this topic, is just that when you take away their land empire, when you take away the responsibilities of defense, of securing borders and, you know, uh, administration, ISIS now turns into uh, a just old-fashioned terrorist organization. And that kind of frees them up a little bit. You know, when you're defending territory, you have to do things in a more traditional way. Uh, and now you're allowed to just pick on whoever you want and cite whatever fights you want. So my kind of grim and unfortunate prediction is that I think this, the short-term success of uh, the battle in Mosul, which is, which is still going, uh, might lead to ISIS inciting attacks in nearby countries and that could then just lead to like you're saying a more a large-scale conflict because i don't know a lot of these terrorist attacks it's not always clear who is carrying them out who is funding them and it you know a, a paranoid approach to middle east politics is something that you see a lot for example in turkey the the kind of paranoid assumption that there's a conspiracy that there's a some sort of uh, hidden hand be it the jewish international cabal of bankers or the CIA, or whomever, the problem, yeah, right, all right, but the problem is these, these paranoid assumptions have been proven true some of the time. So, I mean, if ISIS is able to carry out attacks and either hide who did it or blame it on someone else or take credit for things when it sows fear, you could see a lot of countries getting drawn into this conflict and a lot of populations either fleeing or you know, uh, signing up for a more religious nationalism, a kind of militant defense against outsiders. I, I agree with you on that. And I also think that I think we are, I don't want to say lucky, but we are a little almost fortunate that 
ISIS is so absolutely chauvinistic in their, it, it is even indirectly related to them, they will claim uh, responsibility for it, even if they actually didn't do it. But I think Iran will see Saudi Arabia, and for not wrong reasons, as a backer of ISIS, and I think that could lead to the tensions you're talking about. And yeah, not to not to leave out the thought that, that you know President Elect Trump has his language has been incredibly belligerent. He's he's spoken of of what I can't remember exactly what his words were, but bombing the hell out of out of ISIS. And really, it's you know taking taking his word for it. It's hard to believe that he wouldn't act at just the, the smallest sign of, of aggression or, or acts of terror on their end. It's it's, and it's scary to think you know he has not ruled out um, the use of nuclear nuclear weapons, the first use of nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, I, one can only hope that it it doesn't reach that point. Um, yeah, the, the the United States that Donald Trump doesn't take us into that sort of a conflict. Well, and that might be the yeah. X factor here. Not to interrupt, but you know what what if an American international is killed in one of these attacks? You know what? It, and all all it takes is one foreign exchange student. Uh, God help us if it's a white lady who's pretty. We'll be in real big shit trouble then. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's someone's visiting in, in Ankara or, you know, someone happens to be anywhere in Iraq and, and they're an American citizen and they get caught in the crossfire, all of Trump's rhetoric has involved projecting U.S. a power abroad. And I, I can't, I just can't imagine him showing restraint uh, unless he's perhaps humbled by the office and blown away by how much work it actually is. I just it doesn't seem likely, and you know who knows a a a sharp and harsh military response to a a random one-off terrorist attack seems like it might fit his general modus operandi. See, but that's I'm how, that's how you pronounce that, right? Oh, yes, <laughs> not, he's not exactly. A I'm going to disagree with you on that point, though, because I'm gonna, I believe that Donald Trump wants to, I guess, uh, entrench the United States as much as it can within its own borders. It's America for Americans. Hmm. He doesn't mm -hmm. really care what's happening around the rest of the world. I really honestly think he wants to go back to the spheres of influence model. And he does not believe that the U.S. has a sphere of influence or should be, I guess, in a sphere of influence in the Middle East. I don't think, yes, we will have some rhetoric come out if something like that happens, but I think we will devolve that to the local authorities. And I think we'll put greater pressure on authorities like uh, Erdogan to crack down on whoever he thinks might have done it, which will unfortunately always be the Kurds, whether it's the Kurds or not. But we're not going to see too much actual U.S. involvement in those sorts of issues. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good yeah, point. I, I think that that's a pretty good point, um, with the one caveat of if it has something to do, obviously, with, you know, quote, radical Islamic terror, then there's a higher than average chance that Trump would want to respond, mm -hmm. you know, because he feels he needs to respond to that. But I feel that, I guess, and maybe I'm just a little comforted by the thought of the, the generals and, you know, top officials in the DOD being able to constrain his options in some respects. I don't know. I was actually, yeah. well, it's, it's possible. I mean, I was watching uh, The West Wing the other day, and I know this is a TV show, but I'm going to go with it anyway. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of the first episodes where um, the president is confronted with a situation where he wants to, you know, just go in and attack this terrorist group or whatever they did, I can't quite remember. But the generals give them essentially three options, and they say, here are the ones that you get to choose from. You basically don't get to do any other options. This is what we're going to give you. You pick. 
And so I wonder to what extent, you know, in the Situation Room or something like that, the generals and the top officials could say, here's what we're going to allow you to do. You don't get to, you know, quote, bomb the hell out of them. Yes, but he gets to choose his advisors, and I am fairly confident he doesn't trust any of the U.S. generals today that have any rational mind in their head. So he's going to put in people who will either be lackeys or will be just do what he wants to do. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to see. It'll be kind of fascinating to see how that works going forward. Um, I I hope he's able to pick some of the people you you suggested who might challenge him or prevent him with rational options. But uh, if it's people like Michael Flynn, if it's people who are coming from the old uh, Bush White House administration, you know, which it seems like it's a weird mix of of old neoliberal. Uh, general aggressive warhawk types but i you know i just don't know i i can only hope that he follows the west wing model nick and that he comes in you know with a head full of steam and then and then bows to the wisdom of people who've done it before it's just i mean the x factor to me is if an american dies that's all it comes down to because so much of his rhetoric is around america first and you know i think that that's a good point that you know we want to focus on our own borders that's what he's been saying for so long but it, all it takes is one dead white person, one dead American overseas, killed by the thing that Obama wouldn't even say the name of, right? And then, I don't know, it, there's going to be a weird push for him, I think, to prove uh, the size of his hands overseas, you know? <laughs> like, it's got it's to be something like that. And, and uh, the fact that he's competing with people like Putin, uh, who are very comfortable protecting their power abroad, means he might try throwing his weight around to see how it feels. I do wonder to what yeah. extent the, and I know this is sort of not on the topic, but I do wonder to what extent the United States is going to pursue its pivot to uh, East China. Hmm. Because really you have, during Trump's campaign, he was very friendly with Russia, very aggressive with China. So I think it makes logical sense to say that he's going to pivot out of the Middle East to East Asia. But I'm not really confident in that. I'm not really confident that he has any idea what he's doing, to be fair. But I'm not confident that he will follow through the plan that is not his own. True. And we can all of these assumptions are based on the fact that he knows what the hell he's talking about. And I, I, you know, when you talk about spheres of influence, my first thought was, I do not think he knows what that means. I do not think he's heard. <laughs> I do not think he's heard that phrase before. And I think if he he was explained though, if that was someone someone explained it to him, he would get on board. But I think for the most part, he is learning as he goes. And in, I'm not sure if it was the second debate or the, or the, I think it was the second debate. He was asked about Aleppo and it was very clear in his answer that he did not know what was going on in Aleppo. He was, he was basing his responses on what Hillary said first. It was kind of, well, based on what she said, there's some sort of conflict there. And as someone who has spent a lot of time teaching undergrads, uh, world history uh, and other history courses, you get that deer in the headlights look of someone who has not done the reading and and it's and it's okay we've all been there but um some students will scramble and bullshit and you can you kind of smile and you and you let them get dig themselves out of a hole but in Trump's case he just kind of said well Aleppo's gone right it's over and there are probably a lot of Syrians who were very sad to hear that because they are still there right and so it was just, I'm, I'm laughing. This is a horrible thing, but it, it just, it was just so clearly clear to me that he 
had not done the requisite work to learn about the stuff. And even if he has people in his in his, in his cabinet, in his uh, administration, who have done that homework, they're coming from a very conservative, war hawk train of um, ideology. And I, I just don't know that he has the ability to kind of come up with a, a clear plan outside of America first. And if they come near us, if those dirty Muslims come near us, we'll nuke the hell out of them. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed, too, that he seemed to be like that student who clearly didn't prepare for the test and was just trying to make something up, which I guess shows the difference between him and Gary Johnson when asked about Aleppo. He just said, I don't know what that is, basically. Yeah. What's Aleppo? I, w- I would prefer that honesty. <laughs> Yeah, uh, at least you guys, he knows what the nuclear triad is, right? Does he? So, I guess, moving us back onto Iran a little bit, um, it sounds like, obviously, the deal is likely to be undone at some point, which would probably lead Iran to want to continue pursuing its nuclear weapons program. Um, I guess the question would be, then, to what extent does the United States pursue a military response to prevent that from happening? I don't think we do. I think we leave it to Israel. I think we are completely in support of Israel preemptive bombing Iran, but I don't think the U.S. gets involved even a little bit. I'm not sure that we have the social and diplomatic capital to do anything like that anymore. I mean, you can only spend how many months decrying a deal your government just signed, including... Uh, conservative lawmakers and legislators writing that letter to uh, to Rouhani, right? Like, as if he had not heard of America and how our government works. Like, as if he did not have a Wikipedia yeah. level of how American government works, which was so condescending and so embarrassing on so many levels. But how can we, how could we possibly get involved in someone else's affairs and tell them you can or can't do anything at this point? But what uh, the you, you mentioned... Israel does get involved if Iran starts with a nuclear weapons program and Iran does get involved. What is the United States' response to um, Israel being belligerent towards a nuclear Iran? Hmm. I mean, blind support? Hooray! Yeah. That's, I, we'd be completely in favor of it. I'm not even so sure that we wouldn't be in complete favor of Saudi Arabia. So, yeah proactively attacking Iran because they're the evil empire. They're not even an empire, you guys. <laughs> they're just they just want to survive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate because I think that with the election of Trump we have given up a lot of our options in the Middle East just because we don't want to be involved. Mm-hmm. We don't have any options when we say, what's going to happen if Israel attacks Iran? We're going to sit back and watch because we don't care. What's going to happen if Saudi Arabia just massacres everyone in Yemen? Well, it's not in our area, so it doesn't really matter. What happens if Iran decides to, I don't know, step up the Quds force in Iraq and Syria and just start massacring Sunni civilians to get civil wars going to distract everyone. Well, it's not really our problem. I mean, what's to stop us from making it our problem? Public sentiment. 
there's no way the public would be bored anymore. One would hope. No, it, I mean, we had never again when it came to Rwanda. We had never again when it was Bosnia. We had never again when it was back in World War II when the, during the Holocaust. But never again always happens. It, it'll be interesting, interesting to see how uh, we negotiate these next several months. Um, there are a lot of talented and, and thoughtful Republicans out there who um, either swore off Trump or promised to work as a check against him within the system. Um, but to be honest, we just don't know who the people are that we're talking about here. We don't know um, how he's going to do, how he's going to adjust our diplomatic strategy. Um, the best case scenario, I think what we keep kind of dancing around, is that he will just hand up, hand these jobs off to uh, talented subordinates, and that would be great. But and listen to those subordinates. And li yeah, and listen and give them a you know a venue to speak their minds and challenge him. Um, there's an outside shot that he becomes so humbled and terrified of the fact that he has no clue what he's doing and is now, you know, he's now on the hook. You know, if he screws up, there's no one else to blame. They have every House of Congress, they have the Supreme Court, they have the presidency, they have most state legislatures. There's no one to blame but him, uh, and that's that's comforting for me a little bit, but, you know, all of these conversations we're having, unfortunately, are relying upon a coherent strategy, and it's very possible that that all just gets tossed out the window, and we end up just flailing, responding to individual problems with short-term responses. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's I, and really I, what the election of Donald Trump is. That's We're incoherently flailing about without strategy. We have we don't care about strategy in the United States. Democracy doesn't care about strategy. There's a good argument to be made that there isn't a democracy on Earth that can have a coherent strategy. Just because of democracy, you have to give that option to the people, and the people don't... Um, sounds elitist, but they don't know what they're doing all the time. <laughs> the people aren't necessarily invested in foreign affairs so much, and they don't, they don't necessarily have a reason to be. Yeah, and I think to, you know, in defense of the people, these are incredibly complicated issues that, you know, some of the brightest minds in the world still struggle with. So. It's a little bit funny when I'll get asked questions about the conflict in Syria, and I will literally look at people and say, I'm not 100% sure who's fighting who anymore. I, I kind of know. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I kind of <laughs> have an idea of who is allied with who and whose interests align. But that stuff changes every couple months, you know, and it's not so much because the people there are acting irrationally, but it's because there are just so many actors at play and there's so many different things happening at once that, um, as you guys are, as Nick just said, you know, really smart people can't figure it out. Uh, and <laughs> Trump is not a very smart people. <laughs> like he's not, he's not skilled in this way. Um, and so I don't know, I, not to jump to Syria too early, but I, that is where I'm most concerned. Actually. I think, you know, Iran, can handle itself. Um, I think that they have enough of a government structure in place to survive these next couple of years. Um, I think Syria, we're looking at an even greater exodus of people and, and far more unnecessary death as we try to get our feet under ourselves. See, I'm going to also disagree with you on that, just because I know Syria definitely will be the more humanitarian problem, and there will be much greater human suffering in Syria than anything will be established by Iran in the short term. But Iran presents a political problem that will reach on into the future, while Syria, yes, it's going to be a genocide. 
and then it will unfortunately end. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, it will end. So, Ron, you're going to look at a lot of proxy wars. You're going to look at a lot more of these sorts of genocides. You're going to look at the prospect of interstate war. And between such implicatable foes, I, I can't see... Saudi Arabia goes to war with Iran. The entire, uh, the entire uh, Shia population of Saudi Arabia is going to be massacred. There's going to be a lot of murders in Iran. There's going to be uh, gas attacks. There's going to be all these unconventional warfare sorts of asymmetrical military strategies, which are going to result in far more civilian populations than we have in Syria. Not to say Syria is not bad. I'm not saying that at all. Sure, sure. This kind of goes back to the larger idea of what what is a bigger tragedy, uh, a short-term huge massacre or a kind of long-term political instability. And uh, as we've seen in the Middle East, uh, that's where terrorist groups sprout up, where we have a a weakening of, of large state power. You have these power vacuums. You have a general lawlessness and inability to provide services for citizens. And so when that happens, you have groups coming up to provide those services. And and yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I can see why you'd be right. Uh, I, I don't know what to hope for at this point. I completely agree with you on that point. So on this note, let's um, go ahead and just kind of formally transition into Syria, if that's all right. So the Syrian civil war has raged on for well over five years now, and the situation of the rebels is looking increasingly dire, with basically only Aleppo remaining as a contested urban rural area, about the only rural area left, excuse me, the only urban area left that the rebels currently have. Trump has made it clear he does not want to keep America entangled in this conflict. So what are your thoughts? Do you think that we are going to remain entangled in this, or... As uh, Stephen was suggesting earlier, do you think it'll be retrenchment? Uh, are we entangled in this right now? I think we are. We are entangled in terms of providing at least material and moral support for the rebels. But Trump just came out, I think it was three days ago, and specifically said that he's looking forward to working with the Russians and the Assad regime to getting rid of ISIS. And <laughs> I think that um, Donald Trump agrees with Russia that anyone who opposes the Assad regime is ISIS, whether they be the Islamic Front, whether they be the Free Syrian Army, whether they be Al-Nursa, they're all ISIS. Yep. So no, I, it, I, oh, sorry, go, sorry. No, I was, it, it seems, that, that seems to be one, one uniform policy issue on which Trump has been clear, um, and mm-hmm. one of the few on which he's made a post-election statement, it sounds like we're joining Team Putin, Team Assad. It's, you know, and and not that I'm, sorry, not that I'm like okay with that, but at the same time I wonder, I mean, to what extent can we continue to you know, fund and support these disparate rebel organizations when it seems so clear that some kind of total victory on their part is next to impossible. And maybe the best we could hope for is some kind of negotiated settlement, which even then could be years down the line. You know, how long do we continue to attempt what is clearly not a winning strategy? I agree with you, Nick, and that's, I actually wrote about that in your uh, Orientalist Express a little while ago, and I basically said there's no way that the rebels can win anymore. There's going to be no political agreement because 
because Saad knows that he can win. There is going to be a, I guess, unstoppable wave of slaughter that goes through Syria. It's going to kill every single, well, a lot of the rebels. There's going to be a lot of remnants left over, but there's no way that anyone besides the Assad regime itself wins. I'm sure at the end of the game, Assad gets removed from power and sent off to nice Dhaka in Russia, but there's no way that the regime itself loses. So this isn't a, a perfect comparison because, of course, the, the situations are very different, but um, I'm actually reminded a little bit of the FLN's resistance to French colonialism in Algeria and kind of, you know, the, the initial response was quashed uh, violently. And, uh, you know, many civilians were killed, many uh, rebels or terrorists, depending on your view, were killed. And the movement shut down. They couldn't, they could not win against this foe who was just better armed and, and more organized. Uh, and then, you know, how many years, was it five years later? This kind of massive public resistance. And then, you know, it became uh, an independent state. And so this isn't the same thing. We're not looking at, at colonialism in the same way. But I wonder how long Assad can keep ruling when there's just no public. I mean, how much public support can you have for people, for someone who machine guns your neighbors and your cousins and your family? Uh, I'm wondering, I guess what I'm wondering is, as you said, you know, eventually uh, we'll have this person move from power or he will be kicked out or something. But what's the timeline here? How long do we think he can hold on uh, to his people against their will? I actually think that's part of the end game for what Russia's planning is Russia is going to go in there and at the verge of the end of this uh, Syrian conflict, which will probably take another couple, uh, probably another five years, we're going to have this political agreement come out. And I do the political agreement I'm doing quotes in my hands right now. And it's going to be Russia and Syria dictating to the rebels that some of them can live, Assad will go live somewhere else, and the regime is going to stay in power. And everyone wins, but not really. But I do like your, I will say, I do really like your, I guess, comparison to Algeria, just because Algeria is still such a, it is a security state still. Mm -hmm. And you still have a lot of resistance to the Algerian government, but you also have just an immense security state apparatus, which just suppresses everyone. Algeria was noticeably one of the few MENA countries that wasn't affected as, I guess, badly by the um, Arab Spring. That's because they were just immediately suppressed. There was no chance for that to happen. I agree. I think it's a very good historical analogy. And I mean, to some extent, I think it can even play out in the fact that, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after the FLM was basically you know, destroyed in the urban areas, they just dispersed into the rural countryside and managed to essentially stay alive as best as they could for several years. And I feel like a similar kind of thing is exactly what would be happening here, is that in the cities... You know, the rebels are basically out in most of the major cities, and so what they have left is the countryside, where they will continue to essentially gain some support and elude mm -hmm. the Assad regime to the best they can. Just provide a kind of, um, uh, not necessarily an outright resistance, but just kind of go to ground for a little bit and, you know, uh, create networks within these this countryside. I... I don't know. I think that the problem with that analogy, um, which I do think works on some levels, but the problem is just that 
in the modern world, the ability to suppress suppress dissent is so much more powerful. You know, you have ways using the internet to spread your word, but we also have technology devised to control that. And I think all it really takes to hold power is a military and police force that is loyal to you and uh, no qualms about doing horrible things. And Assad has shown that he has both of that, both of those things. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess that's the one positive, that's a positive approach or a positive perspective that they could go to ground and, and fight a way, find a way to overthrow him in the future. But it does not look like Assad will take that sitting down. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, as soon as he declares victory, he begins a kind of ethnic cleansing that's not ethnic, but political cleansing. I did want to ask you guys also that there's a uh, Brookings scholar named Shadi Abid. He wrote a book about um, temptations of power. And basically what his thesis in that is that uh, in all these Middle Eastern states, you have such a, as we're talking about, we're going to have such a repressive security regime that the only political, well, pseudo-political structures that exist are the mosques. So you have a political structure existing within the mosque. You have nothing else really existing around so that eventually, and I do believe that eventually this regime and all authoritarian regimes have to crack to some point. We will have another Islamist uprising just because there is no alternative in an authoritarian regime. And I'm just wondering if you guys think that this is all going to repeat itself again, not in any time soon, but maybe... 20, 30 years when people have kind of forgotten about this resistance? I would agree with that, um, in large part because any other political party is is shuttered and, and thrown out as soon as it's formed. And there's no other political organization that you can trust, and that's why the Muslim Brotherhood was so powerful in Egypt. And um, I think for a lot of people uh, in the Middle East, and this is, of course, a huge, broad generalization, but um, it's much easier to trust uh, you know, your local religious organizations or religious groups um, beyond the government, beyond political groups, because they're there longer, they have roots, they have connections, they have, you know, familial ties. And so, uh, yeah, that's that seems like it might just happen again. And the only hope is that there's been some modernization within some of these religious groups, um, modernization in the sense that they're more aware of the fact that uh, kind of blind sectarian violence has not succeeded in the past and that perhaps they should not repeat the same mistakes. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm not as plugged into that world. I can't speak to it. I will say, unfortunately, I don't think there will be a modernization of when you have a, I guess, a religious uprising in any sense of the word. I don't think you can have a modernization. You had the uh, Syrian uh, civil war back in, was it 1920s, I want to say? Something along that. But the old civil war you had, it was the Sunnis versus the Christians and the Jews. I mean, you just divide among those lines, and unfortunately, to get everyone else to be on your side, you have to play to your base in that case, which just makes everyone more radical. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Un unless if Assad could somehow turn everything around and modernize his country and make everything so great again that everyone decides, <laughs> decides to stop and, and forget the mass atrocities that have been committed. I mean, yes, it's absolutely true that there would be, within the next, you know, 10, 20, even 30 years, another very similar grassroots type uprising that 
either overthrows him or again plunges the region into massive civil war. Because, I mean, everything is going to be set up just the way it was before, only this time everyone will be even more upset with the Assad regime, except for, with the exception of the hardline supporters, of course. Yeah, and I'd, I'd honestly like to see where Iraq is going to fall and where Syria will fall after all the ships come down, and are we going to have a belt of Iranian influence extending from the Arabian Sea to the Mediterranean Sea? Because that's what it's looking like right now, and how does Saudi Arabia react to that? How does Turkey react to that? I think Egypt will let things fly because it's such a bad place right now, but I don't think Saudi Arabia or Turkey take that standing. Are, are we assuming that Saudi Arabia is able to maintain its kind of current influence and power as their economy weakens and, you know, oil prices That's have been, point. I mean, they've, they've been going down. And I don't know that even if they do have a spike in the future, I think the writing is on the wall that Saudi Arabian money and, and, um, ideological influence can only push people so far uh i don't know i'm i'm not i'm not guaranteeing that they're going to collapse tomorrow i just think that it's been a slow and steady decline in influence as far as uh both just you know straight up cash dollars that they have available to them and also the fact that they're supporting groups that are killing fellow muslims and muslims are not stupid they're aware of that so i don't know maybe they're on the way out i agree i think we absolutely have to remember that the Saudi regime is very fragile in the sense that it has no diversification in its economy other than oil. And within the next, you know, fifty some odd years, that's going to be an extreme liability for them. But you don't see them so coming down. They it's can... basically a new Iraq where you're going to have a giant security state that's going to be it will be suppressing all these different uh, minorities. At this point, the Wahhabis will be almost a giant minority in the country. And basically turning into a country where you have a, a third world country. It doesn't have all the oil, it doesn't have all of this other stuff, but it's supported by countries like China and maybe the United States just to have stability. Not so much because they're right, but because we want it stable. Definitely. Hasn't stability been the problem with our policy for so long, though, right? You know, supporting not just in the Middle East, but all over the world, supporting the unfavorable uh, or frustrating person because they promise stability. Well, they'll, they won't let the country go into civil war. They might not let journalists write without going to jail, you know, and that's not, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong, but that's one of those long-term trends that has always been disappointing when we talk about U.S. foreign policy abroad in, in South America or the Middle East or Asia. I completely agree with you, and I actually thought we might be turning a corner at that at the end of the Bush years and the beginning of the Obama years, where we actually were, I can say what you want about President Bush, he was a huge advocate of democracy in really stupid ways, and he was advocating democracy to all these different states without really knowing what it was, and eventually it came back to fight the entire region, and we are looking at this region now, and most scholars, I don't want to say most scholars, I can't speak for most scholars, but a lot of scholars look at the region and go, yeah, democracy doesn't really work in this case right now. It's a Western idea. It's not a global idea. We can't implement it here. Especially, I know there's been a lot of uh, Chinese scholars that say democracy is a Western idea. It's not a global idea. Hmm. The uh, And State building seems like it is the era of state building, I and mean, even though George W. Bush had 
that's the one that he wouldn't um, go about um, state building. He ended up doing so, and I think Donald Trump has has made the same pledge. He said he won't attempt to spread democracy. He won't attempt. Um, he won't uh, try his hand at state building. Yeah, I think it is at least refreshing that we probably won't be pursuing a policy of state building, but then at the same time, complete retrenchment doesn't sound like it's going to help much no. either. I just think it's going to be really strange to look at the world again and basically have a 1970 situation where every single state is controlled, or every single developing state is controlled by a strong man. And we look at that as a positive thing. We look at, at least they can ensure stability in that country. And, you know, South Asia was mentioned. A lot of those South Asian, you know, so moving away from the Middle East, a lot of those South Asian strongmen have, have voiced their enthusiastic support for, for Donald Trump. Um, which, yeah. you know, it won't, it's, it won't attempt to um, uh, think about what that might mean, what might become of that, but that's, that is something that has happened. I think it's really kind of scary that, I mean, you have Hungary's prime, uh, president came straight out and said, yeah, for Donald Trump, I'm sure the Filipino president would say the same thing. He already did. Uh, did he? Okay. Yes. Yeah, and I, all these different, I don't want to say problem countries, because they're not, I mean, problem countries, but problem leaders are coming out there and just making a mockery of modern international rules and the globalized system. But of course, you know, why, why wouldn't they, to some extent? It's clearly politically palatable and... There are millions of people who have been put off by globalization and, you know, these current trends in international relations. So, to some extent, it's not surprising. I mean, especially after looking at the Arab Spring, looking at the failures of the Arab Spring and seeing that, you know, all of these calls for freedom and democracy didn't really pan out, with the exception maybe Tunisia. And instead, we just had more instability and strongman dictators yep. come into power again. And how much of that comes back to, um, I'm not, I don't remember if it was Brandon or Stephen who said this earlier, but the the reliance on religious structures um, as political actors because there's no other political group to fall back on. So the Arab Spring comes along and it's wonderful and exciting, but there's just no established oppositional political party or group or separate groups to take that mantle and, and push it forward. So you end up with People flailing around. There's no one to actually enact these these courageous reforms they're suggesting, and it just kind of uh, flails around until it collapses. So, with regards to Syria, do we think that the most likely outcome is some type of negotiated settlement, or essentially just the rebels uh, maintaining whatever they have in the countryside and continuing to have a the kind of simmering resistance. My forecast, what do we no think matter how much I hope it's wrong, is going to be that the rebels are completely collapsed. Assad's regime completely wins. End game. No, I, it, I sort of anticipate the same thing. It would be interesting to see um, how, I guess forgiving is not a word you can apply to Assad, but um, how far he pushes this and how how much he cares about international opinions about him. Uh, and I imagine it's very little. Because if he decides, you know what, these people uh, made me look bad and I hate them and I'm just going to 
keep going until they're all gone versus some sort of negotiated middle ground. Um, I think his anger and bitterness and, uh, I guess, cruelty and ability to do horrible things will outweigh his need to please international critics. And, you know, the, the, he, he, yeah, he really has no, I, I can't see why he'd be invested in pleasing anyone. Um, he'll mm-hmm. likely have, um, the United States on his side, he'll likely have Russia on his side. Doesn't, it, it, there's really probably nothing to gain from, from being diplomatic in all of this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be really interested to see what happens to Syria and Turkey in regards to their relations after this. Sure, Turkey can see the writing on the wall right now that they're not going to Syria is not going to flip like Turkey wanted it to. And how those two, after Turkey so brazenly supported the downfall of the Saudi regime, how they get along after that. What's their modus vivendi? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be interesting too, uh, in large part, because Erdogan doesn't have any checks on his power either. So you have two men who uh, don't like each other, who believe that the other one is actively working against their best interests and have no local checks on their power. So it's just going to be them and their their collection of staff that are advising them to decide, you know what, that troop movement uh, near the Syrian border, I didn't like that. And here we're going to do something about it. Do you think it's possible that this could... And this would probably be five to ten years in the future after the Syrian army has basically reconstituted and recovered from the civil war. Do you think it's possible that there would be a similar type of situation as there was during the Iran-Iraq war between Syria and Turkey? You know, I'd actually, I I think I know what you mean in terms of uh, Saudi Arabia fighting Turkey, right? Of, Of Syria and Turkey, actually essentially going to war yeah. over, like Kurt said, some kind of perceived troop movement or something to that effect. I completely agree with that, then, because both are uh, brazenly authoritarian leaders who need the nationalist movement behind them, and the best way to do that is to rally around the flag. How better for Syria to unify than to go to war and to somehow make it look like it's Turkey's fault that they rally? I'm sh- I'm sure it's not hard to make that happen. <laughs> I'm sure. No, I'm no. sure Erdogan will do something that makes that very easy to to prove. What uh, What are your thoughts on the large refugee populations, the Syrian refugee population currently living in Turkey? What becomes of them? It's It's been hard to watch because uh, Turkey fought so hard and worked so really worked very well. Um, Erdogan, for all of his faults, must be commended for you know, really just embracing the community and saying, you know, you're our brothers, we're going to spend millions of dollars, you know, millions and millions of dollars on camps and assimilation and, and ways to get them moving to Europe um, if, if, if they need to. Um, I think he was banking on the fact that Europe would embrace its historical ideology of uh, democracy and, and, and civilization, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that didn't go so well. But, you know, you have, it was 2 million at last count. I'm not sure if that number has probably gone up since then. Um, it's simply unsustainable. You, you can't, for a country of Turkey's size, you can't just absorb that many people without some sort of foreign aid to uh, kind of defray the cost. I just, I don't know. Um, I think as Erdogan gets more extreme 
and uh, needs scapegoats and needs to hold on to his power. Uh, I, it just doesn't seem like a good situation. And if we had a Hillary Clinton presidency, there might be some sort of chance that America would take a larger step forward in aiding refugees from Syria, uh, perhaps letting some from Turkey uh, resettle in the United States. Uh, it's just, there's just no reason to suspect it's going to get any better. That's a very depressing diagnosis, but we agree with that. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I could, I wish we could all just, I wish you guys would just jump in and say, you're wrong, here's why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I agree too. And I think it's important for us to point out that, I mean, this is not really the fault of the ascendance of Donald Trump. I mean, this is just, you know, these, these pieces were in place even before that. And so, these types of dire predictions, um, they may be fueled by that in some regard, but in some ways, these are difficult situations that you know, even a Hillary Clinton presidency probably couldn't have solved, mm-hmm. or at least couldn't have solved in the same way. But I think we would have at least projected our power and tried to influence those decisions, because, I mean, you can't say that Turkey was a democracy when we first started working with them during the Cold War. They were very much not. They were very much closed off. They were authoritarian, but there was a large push, but and they were obviously um, aligned against Russia, so there was a large push by the United States for aid to Turkey, and eventually I think it opened up Turkey a little bit because they saw the benefits of a more westernized system, and right now Erdogan is looking at it and going, one, I can have all the power, and two, Russia's really on the up and up. U.S. is on the down. I am closer to Russia than I am to the United States. It is more intelligent to align myself with Russia. I I don't know that Erdogan trusts Putin. Um, And even if he did, I think uh, the Gulen movement is a good comparison because when Erdogan first came to power, or at least was aiming to do so, he allied himself with the Gulen movement, um, which is kind of a... It's hard to explain. There's a lot of different explainers out there, but basically it's a religious influenced movement that uh, supports education and schools and uh, interreligious solidarity throughout the world. If you look at it in a positive light, in a negative light, it is a global conspiracy uh, with a religious, a Muslim religious uh, tinge. And, um, you know, when, when Erdogan started out, he was convenient. They were both attempting to grow their influence and power. And what Erdogan found out was that he could not handle a secondary person. He could not handle sharing power. And so that meant, you know, coming to blows. And there's been all sorts of different internal conflicts over this. What I think is fascinating is that, you know, um, we might see an early alliance with Putin, or at least, you know, conversations with Putin, where Erdogan is finding ways to, to align their interests. But it didn't take Erdogan very long to turn against his ally when that ally demanded to have more power. And I, I just can't imagine that Putin is going to allow someone free reign when there is no other nearby power to stop him from expanding his influence and even potentially taking territory. Who knows? I mean, I didn't think he could do that anymore, but now we have the Crimea and we have Ukraine and we have this, this complex uh, uh, global power who is just being opportunistic and waiting to see what falls and, uh, where the chips fall and where he can expand his influence. So I don't know. I, I think you're right that, that there might be some alliance to Russia, but 
Um, I imagine Erdogan is uh, too much a student of Russian uh, aggression towards Turkey in history and too much of a power-hungry individual to allow himself to subordinate himself to a larger group. Well, in that sense, you could have kind of a... uh, the way that Poland and the USSR worked with each other. I mean, for all what we say is Poland was part of the USSR, Poland really had a very strong nationalist structure in there, but for all intents and purposes aligned with the USSR when the chips came falling down. Mm -hmm. Do you see that kind of as a template for what might happen? That could. Again, it really just depends on... um on how Erdogan's practicality and, and ambition clashes with um, his need to be in charge. And, you know, it, it, for, for him, it might be something like, in the case of the USSR in Poland, I think USSR was just so much more powerful in that context than Russia is now. Um, Russia is very powerful, but not to the same overwhelming extent as they, as they were back then. Um, I don't know, it's, it's just hard to predict because... Erdogan is a little bit like Michael Jordan in that he, if he doesn't have an enemy, he'll invent one. You know, if he doesn't have a, a if there's if there's no rival saying that, oh, you know, you're a punk and your crossover isn't that good, Jordan will just invent some made up slight, some made up insult that then drives him. And I think for Erdogan, it's not insults as much as you know, uh, reading into people's actions and reading into their intentions. And if he doesn't have a reason to distrust Putin, I, I don't think it's long before he finds one. So what you're saying is Erdogan's probably going to start playing baseball. <laughs> yes, Birmingham was, was the Barons. <laughs> I, I was also saying, I think you might have been wrong for this, Kurt, but um, how there's basically the international order with the election of President uh, Trump is basically collapsing. I mean, as you said, uh, Russia is unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly able to actually take territory in a liberal system, which shouldn't be possible, but it is possible now. And I think that you're going to have the United States not care. As I said about the, he doesn't know about sphere of influences, but it's going to really revert to a sphere of influences sort of model. And I think that you're going to have a lot of wars, especially in, the reason I bring this up is between Turkey and Syria. I think you see Turkey honestly trying to take some Syrian territory, maybe the Kurdish areas to make a better I guess, <laughs> uh, work with the Kurds. I don't know how you want to say that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, but, I mean, yeah, not to interrupt. So it's just, no. and the Kurdish issue is a whole completely different thing. I just, I don't know. Yeah. Is that, is that a bad start to the podcast, Nick? A lot of, we just don't know yet. It's going to be, uh, an adventure, a sad, depressing adventure. Well, and, and, and that's exactly how everyone is feeling mm-hmm. now with, you know, the election of Trump, there's just so much uncertainty that we can try our best to predict what might happen, but, you know, he's been several different people, you know, sometimes he says outrageous things, and then other times he seems to be at least somewhat coherent, and his policies are just drastically different from day to day, or even from sentence to sentence, so it's it's difficult to truly predict what he could do right now. I think the best prediction, honestly, to be fair, though, is going to be to predict that he does very little. I think that when you are as... I'm not saying this on a political level. I'm saying this on an international, realistic level. When you are as incompetent as he is, involving international relations, 
although you might want to be brazen and belligerent when you go out and involve with everybody, but you're not dealing with small fish anymore. You're dealing with the biggest fish in the world, and it's going to lead to a stalemate, and he's not going to be doing anything. We're going to be in a holding pattern that is going to allow anyone else who is bold enough to take that opportunity to be able to make some pretty big inroads wherever they feel like in the world. What, uh, though, perhaps he is, for the next, at least for the next two to four years, he has, um, he has both the House of Representatives and the Senate on his side. Um, though those bodies of government are quite different, the legislative branch is quite different, what role do you think this this now united conservative government might have on our foreign affairs? Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, fighting Tom Cotton. Uh, who's one of those guys uh, is very, very sure he has a clear idea of how the world works. He's already been to Iowa a couple times to begin speaking tours and set himself up as a future president. Um, I think for a lot of uh, Republican congressmen, this is going to be a chance to spread their, to make themselves seem like they're part of this, this larger power structure and present themselves as options for a run in four years. Um, I think it's going to be, Really interesting to see uh, what happens. There's there are some divisions. You know, Trump ran a populist campaign that was supposed to protect Medicare and Social Security and other things, and have a very particular view of the of foreign policy in the Middle East and, and and abroad. And there are a lot of Republicans who don't believe that. So I I don't know. I, I think for the most part, this next six month period is going to be fascinating in an objective historical sense and terrifying in a human being sense um, because they're going to be feeling each other out. They're going to be trying to see what they can get away with. And for Trump, it's going to be figuring out what exactly he can do. And in this case of, of the executive branch, which has been expanded by Obama uh, for better or worse uh, over the past four years after on top of all of George W. Bush's expansions, um, this could be the most powerful presidency in American history in the sense of what executive orders are able to accomplish and what kind of illegal things you can do with a drone war. I just, I don't know. I don't think that we've seen any Republicans outside of the four never Trumpers show any spine in dealing with Trump. I cannot imagine they're going to suddenly wake up and realize, oh, now we should stand up to him, you know, now that he's well, been emboldened. On the international relations level as well, that actually, it terrifies me that a lot of these international relations experts on the Republican side, whether you agree with them or not, were never Trumpers. They looked at it, and I mean, you're talking about people like uh, Tom, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget his last name, but uh, he's a professor at the Naval War College, and vehemently anti-Trump. And now these people who were completely never Trump, never Trump, we have to look at them and go, oh, please, God, please work with Trump. I know you said never Trump. I will not hold it against you, though, if you work in his office, because he's having problems filling all these slots, and he's going to fill them with that, I forget his name, too, but it's some idiot that Trump hired who had no political campaign experience whatsoever that he sent over to Russia to basically create back roads with Russia, and he was completely used. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a lot of these foreign policy officials, which have very few experience, because they're the only ones that weren't for Trump in these sorts of positions, and they're going to be taken advantage of at every step. That, that's been one analysis I've seen a lot, which is that um, regardless of whether or not people were never Trump, 
even if they were against him but didn't speak out in public, uh, there's been the people who have been vocally loyal to him often have no experience and are using this as a way to get a jump on their careers. And uh, there are a lot of people in line for a lot of positions that are just grossly underqualified. And looking at his cabinet choices, uh, again, in a historical perspective, is fascinating because political scientists and historians for years are going to be looking at this and are going to say, how much does it matter that the head of the Department of Education is an actual moron who has never really put much <laughs> thought into, you know, like it's, it, we're basically, we're testing the strength of our institutions. Um, but, you know, a lot of these guys who were on the fence and didn't say anything, I think will get pushed out. And those are the guys who, even if I disagree with their ideology, at least understand the levers of power and, and the kind of functions of, the, of this, this state bureaucracy. There'll be a lot of young and, and hungry, maybe not necessarily young, but hungry people who are ambitious and are trying and are going to try to bend the rules that they're given to see how much they can do. And that is a recipe for a really scary four years, especially on the foreign policy front, because a lot of these things we're talking about are not set in stone laws, but precedent, but tradition, but, you know, polite ways to interact with other countries. And if someone says, we're not going to do that because it's not written in stone, you know, uh, there's no law for that. Trump didn't bring his traveling press corps with him for his meeting with Obama, which is a tradition, a precedent we've always done. Uh, and he just didn't do it. There's no law for it. There's no rule you should ha you have to do that. But we're already seeing him figure out, you know, well, I don't have to do that. And I can and no one can punish me for this anymore. Yep. I really apologize I... for being the downer in this podcast. Oh, no, <laughs> no, we're, all, no. we're all the downer in this podcast. <laughs> I do. I will say that that it, the idea that we do have all this new blood going into the political system does give me a little bit of hope because I know for everything I I didn't really like about Ronald Reagan, he was the one who came up with or not the one, but he was the administration that came up with the Iran Contra idea, which I know is everyone absolutely hates and thinks it's a horrible idea, but we were actually talking to Iran during an incredibly heated moment and I think there are going to be a lot of these people who come out with what look like very naive ideas and hopefully hopefully they are not hopefully they are completely new ways of looking at things that allow more dialogue between different countries that allow better dialogue between different countries and that hopefully don't absolutely wreck the international order that's the most optimistic reading of Iran country I've ever heard and I I I can't agree with it, but I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like we're uh, past an hour, so do you think we should try to tackle Russia or push that on to the next podcast? We kind of did oh, tackle yeah. Russia a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. We might just leave it for the next podcast. And... Sounds good to me. Agreed. Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for contributing, and, of course, to our listeners. Um We'll probably be reconvening in the next couple of weeks to discuss a whole wide variety of things, probably Russia and, of course, many other instances of um, foreign policy related to the next president, Donald J. Trump. So, until next time, stay safe out there, folks.
we did it.